Hi folks, welcome to another episode of the Climate Vanguard podcast. This is a bit of a special episode because we're actually in conversation with Nadja Atorovich. Nadja is a fourth year physics student aiming to do a master's next year in green tech with a real passion for climate action. Nadja is on the visual design team at Climate Vanguard and just a general badass. It was so nice to be able to meet Nadja in person because she actually came to our live studio in London, otherwise known as our living room, to record this episode. So let's parachute in and listen to Nadja and Noah in conversation. I'm excited. Green tech sort of thing, like environmental technology sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I've done a lot of environmental stuff and I just started going down the wormhole. So how did you actually get into the climate space? What kind of piqued your interest about climate crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the first, well, I got into environmentalism through feminism. Um, so I immediately had that sort of lens looking at the climate crisis. Um, so I did in the last year of my school, I did an assembly to the school about feminism, like no oh, present, yeah. like no PowerPoint or anything, just like me words and speaking. Respect. Respect. And it's like my peak of existence <laughs> that assembly. Um, and in, from then I started looking more into feminism, what impact it. And I saw, you know, most women in developing nations are farmers and most farmers are women. Mm. So from the offset, I was like, okay, what's affecting farming? What's affecting our food systems? Mm, mm. That's like the climate crisis. And so before I had like put a name to climate justice, I was already kind of looking into that lens. Yeah. And I guess, how do you view the threat of the climate crisis right now? Because we've known about the climate crisis for a while and yet politicians continue to not implement the action that is needed. And I feel like we're really getting to this fever pitch. Yet it's also being matched with a lot more activism Mm. and a more robust climate movement, whether that be through Extinction Rebellion or Fridays for Future. So what are your thoughts right now on this particular moment that we're in? I think like most youth, I think impending doom sort Mm, of thing. Um, I wouldn't say, like you guys have said, that you didn't feel like eco-anxiety or climate grief or things like that. I always was like, I could be born in any situation. Like I could have been born anywhere in the world. Mm. I could be like a 17-year-old girl, 20-year-old girl in Uganda. I could have gone through FGM and all of these Mm, things. mm. And that's always for me being like, I don't deserve any of this. And just to know that every act of decision we make is causing their suffering Mm, just crushes me, like absolutely crushes me. Mm. And like looking at the cop and things like that, it's just, for me, it's like really outraged at just the audacity of these political leaders to be like, I'm going to look you in the face and be like, this is uh, a sufficient solution. Yeah. You know what I mean? And they're not making the change. Like, what? how is that? How are they are leaders? It makes no sense. It's so infuriating, especially with what the science is telling us. Mm. So crystal clear. Mm. For example, we need to cut our emissions by 45% by 2030 in order to have a habitable future. And then we see politicians pay lip service to climate action while they continue to build fossil fuel infrastructure, which at this point is just death infrastructure. Mm. And like navigating that dissonance personally is just so infuriating. And like you said, I don't necessarily feel that eco-anxiety, but I do feel like enraged at times. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to channel that anger into something productive like Climate Vanguard. What are you hoping to get out of Climate Vanguard or like what your position is at Climate Vanguard? Yeah, so I'm part of the visual design team. I think it's epic, this idea. Yeah. Well, that is Climate Vanguard. <laughs> truly, truly, truly. Like we're talking about for me, how the leaders aren't listening, democracy, yeah. all of that sort of thing. Yeah. And and then when I look into why is things not working? I mean, if you look at, for example, Project Drawdown, yeah. they yeah. did research 100 solutions, which if worked like um, 
together yeah. can cause enough drawdown of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere yeah. to save us from the climate crisis, effect, like kind of, save yeah, us, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, and those are all solutions that can be used right now. Yeah. So in today, what's stopping us is the politics. Like, what else could yeah. there be that's stopping us other than the politics? So when you came to me, you were like, oh, we're coming from anti-capitalist from the offset. I was yeah. like, damn, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And obviously I found you because you were an artist at Unearth Magazine, mm. which was the magazine that I used to help run. And I was really inspired by all your great artwork. One of the best, one of the best artists on on Earth. So, Jack and I were in a position where like we need to find some really talented artists who also like know about the climate crisis, who have this passion for climate action, and yeah, we're so excited to have you on board. So for you, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. For you, how does Climate Vanguard go from being the two of you and your team yeah. to being high level system change? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. It comes back to our theory of change, which we're mm-hmm. currently developing. But what we're trying to do is basically incite a paradigm shift. And a paradigm is basically the values and the way you see the world. And from a paradigm, systems are born. So the paradigm is basically at the bedrock of everything we do. And in order to incite a paradigm shift, we basically looked back at past successful paradigm shifts. And we looked at neoliberalism specifically, which is this like extreme form of capitalism that came about in the 1980s. And basically what they did, for example, is they brought together a bunch of intellectuals and professors who were focusing on this market-oriented economic system that was completely not palatable within the current like post-Keynesian. I don't want to get like too jargonistic, but like the current model, which was much more about like government intervention. It was more like regulated capitalism. Mm -hmm. And they came up with this cohort called the Mont Pelerin Society, where they were working on these ideas, knowing that eventually they would have the opportunity to implement them in a moment of crisis, which came about in the early 70s with the oil shocks. And they basically said, they're going to make these ideas transition from something that's politically impossible to politically inevitable. That's so interesting that they yeah. were like created it, held on to yeah. it, and were like, we're waiting yeah. for this. Yeah. And they said, like, we know it's going to take a generation in order for these ideas to become more accepted. And then they were able to pounce when there was an identifiable crisis where there was an antagonism between what has to happen in the current system. Mm-hmm. And then they built power in politicians and in political circles. So Margaret Thatcher, for example, huge neoliberal, same with Ronald Reagan in the US. Where Climate Vanguard is different is that we know we're never going to have the ears and eyes from established politicians because they're the ones who are not implementing the necessary changes as is. Mm-hmm. So the change agents that we're focusing on are young people who have been driving this conversation forwards people who are open-minded who would be potentially receptive to our ideas as well as then social movements more generally because we think they're the ones who are going to drive this change. It's once the climate movement becomes so robust that governments can no longer ignore their demands that we can win. So that's kind of like our theory of change. And a lot of research suggests that paradigm changes, albeit very difficult to implement in society, Mm -hmm. can happen really quickly within an individual the stars can align and they can see the world completely differently. Yeah. Which is, I think, what Jack and I have. Like, we just see the world differently than people who aren't aware of mm. ecological threats. That for sure. When that came to the forefront for me, that realisation that I have a completely different worldview, effectively, to some people, I was shopping with a friend yeah. before we were doing something in our house. Yeah. 
and they were like, oh, let's get these plastic cups, let's get these yeah, plastic yeah, cutlery yeah. and all of this like stuff. And yeah. I was like, what? Yeah. Like, yeah. how did that go in your brain? Like, in my mind, I was like, who nowadays actually buys a bunch of plastic yeah, cups, a yeah. bunch of plastic cutlery? And that becomes, was my yeah. perspective. Yeah, no, and it becomes uncomfortable at a certain point because like you start to see the world so much differently than a friend you might have who doesn't really acknowledge the threat of climate breakdown and are still eating meat or a lot of animal products. And it's like, where is, like, there is dissonance here, right? Mm. If you're really aware of this, then you need to make certain changes in your own lifestyle or uh, just on an ethical and moral basis. When there was, I was just listening to the podcast Outrage and Optimism. Yeah. And they had, I can't remember who they had on their guest. And he was saying how he was in a meeting with a bunch of financial people. Mm. And they, he asked them, you know, do you think that you'll be able to get to 1.5? Yeah. And they said, yes. Yeah. He said, do you think we'll get to 1.5? They said, no. Yeah. And he said, it's because they think that everybody else can't, mm. aren't slash won't yeah. get to 1.5. Yeah. And that was crazy. And I think that is, if you dilute it to like an individual yeah, 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 thing, yeah. Yeah. when other people don't see the majority of people around them yeah. thinking that it's a big deal, like this climate apathy towards yeah, it, yeah. then it's going to continue that individual is going to continue not thinking that it's going to be a big yeah. deal or that they have to take individual action. Yeah. And that is the hard thing about it is that something like this, you know your individual change is going to make a difference, like your tangible yeah, 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 change. Yeah. But the real reason that you should change like becoming a vegetarian or stopping fast fashion or something mm. is because you can influence the people around you. And, and there's so many statistics about like yeah. us changing our lives to be environmentally conscious does not mean that we reduce our living standards. No, or, in fact, know, it improves it. For sure. Yeah. Like, like are people genuinely happy in our society? I don't think they are. No, like you do not get satisfaction from buying something. You might get like short term like serotonin boost, but the things that actually matter in people's lives is like community, human contact, love, being around your family. Like these are the things that just matter. And we need to elevate that in our society. Like what are the values we're promoting in our society? It's like consumerism and go work and make a lot of money start a family and then you'll be happy yeah the, the work thing is is wild we do the education system yeah. and then you get fed into work yeah for what for who you know even the tangible things like housing is not a human definitely, like, a human definitely, right definitely. why is that why do we have to pay to feel safe mm. inside a building the range between 25 million to 2 billion potentially people are moving because of climate change yeah. like migrating or becoming yeah. refugees and things mm they're losing that safety yeah. they're losing that house and that place that they can feel safe yeah. and just away from the wind or rain or sun yeah, or yeah, yeah they're definitely I mean, of course there are tangible elements to the world we want to build and i think so many of them you can see in like the antagonisms of just walking out into the world we live in now for me that personally comes down to how many cars there are in cities in london especially like this isn't not contributing at all to human welfare in fact it's damaging it in so many ways yeah. considering the pollution considering the noise considering safety issues it's not a good quality of life it's like we can have nice things mm -hmm. we can have nice things we can have universal health care we can have um low cost subsidized housing we can have low carbon transport like all these really amazing things it just requires us to wake up and realize the world we're living in now is destroying our future, A, and B is not making us happy. Mm. Or C, might even be directly causing suffering. Mm. So It is directly, like, I mean, it is yeah. directly causing that suffering. And, and again, it's like, Mombio is actually talking about this idea of system change that right now we have like a very committed minority 
like you, me, and Jack, and others. Yeah, just us three. <laughs> Only us three. But no, like people who are like very passionate about the climate crisis. And we have to build that critical minority to a certain threshold. And there's some literature to suggest that it's around 25%. Once we get that committed minority to 25%, so a quarter of the population, you can attain these quite drastic radical changes because people like wake up and realize that what you're talking about is not far-fetched, but is what actually needs to happen. In part also because they feel like ostracized and feel like mm -hmm. now they start questioning their own ideas of like clinging to norm normality mm -hmm. and realizing that these people like who are committed about these causes are actually right. So yeah. that's part of Vanguard strategy again, is like targeting young people, targeting social movements, targeting people that can kind of come onto our side. Once you build that mass, yeah. It's only a matter of time before what we talk about actually becomes reality. Yeah. So when we talk, so the perspective that you're coming from, mm. when we talk about, oh, it's affecting our future. I understand mm. why we would say it affects our future as yeah. young people, but also as like middle class slash rich white yeah. people. Yeah. You know, yeah. that for me, you know, there are people around the world, especially you're talking about the global situation, who are currently facing and suffering the you know, consequences of climate change, the consequences of our actions. Yeah, 100%. So when it comes to your audience for Climate Vanguard, mm. who are you looking at? Yeah, I think we want this to be international again. And I actually take issue with focusing entirely on the future, although it's important, right? Because in the end, we're fighting for our collective future. But there's so many people in the world who are fighting for their present. Climate change is not some hypothetical event that's going to take place in a couple of decades. It's happening right now and at an alarming pace. Mm -hmm. And it's disproportionately impacting people in the global south, which have been caused by the gluttonous consumption of the global north. And, and we're part of that, but we're also the ones trying to change it. So we have like inherent privilege as white middle class people. So I think what we're trying to do is to use that privilege in order to platform these voices that for far too long have been marginalized from the climate mm. conversation. Not to mention that the climate conversation has been dominated by white men, mm -hmm. basically since its inception. Yeah. And in a sort of twisted way, it's kind of good that the climate crisis is yeah, there no. and that we're not talking about it sometimes in the future because if you think about politicians, they're not thinking about the future. They're not thinking even about 10 years. They're thinking about four years mm. or less. But it's also not too late yet to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. Mm -hmm. So there still is time to change things. There always will, of course, be avenues to change, even if we're at three degrees, because every tenth of a degree of warming means more suffering. But mm -hmm. so like people are waking up to this reality. Now it's about like channeling it into something very positive. And that's what Climate Vanguard is trying to champion. It's like awareness is good and all, but we need mm -hmm. to direct that awareness into the concrete steps we need to do right now, just like any other emergency demands, we need drastic action that can happen in an extremely short. Really short. Time. And that's why I think it's so difficult for like capitalists yeah. to really wrap their head around because you're saying it's a, it was a different lifestyle. It's not a worse lifestyle, but it's different nevertheless. If we're talking, we have eight years now, 2030 mm. to make the changes, yeah, yeah. right? And if you don't make it in that time, but eight years is still like, it is still two times. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's completely mismatched from political cycles as well as, like you said, capitalism and it's focused on short-termism. Mm -hmm. It's like the system we're up against is the exact opposite of what we need. But there are still <laughs> steps we can take mm -hmm. within the system 
to implement some of these core solutions. Yeah, like what? <laughs> well, you're <laughs> to gonna put you on the spot. You're gonna have to wait for our policy outputs, but okay. I think so. Like, I'm I'm happy to talk about that because actually, interestingly enough, like not many people ask us that question. Mm-hmm. I'm always like expecting it. So I always always <laughs> have like solutions in my brain, and like Jack and I, of course, have been focusing a l- like on the side of course like content like this is originally why we wanted to do climate vanguard we wanted to come up with these innovative solutions i suppose one of the core things that we have to do is we have to dismantle the fossil fuel industry mm-hmm. and in order for it to be just it has to be by 2030 to 2035 and i think we would take that one step further and say we should nationalize the fossil fuel industry dismantle it and turn it into a public utility for carbon sequestration so all the pollution it's emitted and now has to, under public ownership, clean up its mess, which is something that isn't really in the current discourse around climate change. Mm-hmm. I think also, like, how do we tackle animal agriculture? Because mm-hmm. the UN says we have to peak animal consumption by 2030. How do we, like, navigate dealing with such a massive industry? We have to transition to a plant-based food system. Mm-hmm. We have to in, in a very short time. It's also about like how do we finance all these initiatives and there's a theory called modern monetary theory, which basically means the government can never be insolvent. It can never go bankrupt in its own currency. So it can basically print all the money it wants in order to fund these public work programs or these large infrastructure projects that we need to address climate breakdown. And then usually people say, what about inflation? To adjust for inflation, you basically implement a wealth tax in order to curb the purchase power of extremely wealthy people. Mm-hmm. Actually, we have all the money we need to build this better world. Yeah. So it's like that type of track that we're looking at. And again, it's like embedded in our understanding that it has to be post-capitalist. It has to be decolonial. It has to be in solidarity with people in the global south. And that's just something that we're going to maintain in our brains. But like, I remember one morning, like early on, a couple of months ago, we woke up and we wrote down like 50 ideas for solutions. Really? We have so many ideas, mm-hmm. which is really encouraging. Now it's more about like, how do we like develop our content strategy? Mm-hmm. Do we focus on kind of creating a roadmap for this next decade mm-hmm. or for like the next year or, or what is the time scale we're looking at and how do we kind of develop that over a long term so we're rolling these solutions out that are in conjunction with one another yeah. so now it's more about like how do we develop that into a cohesive strategy mm-hmm. yeah. so i'm glad you brought up climate reparations and i have questions on your national just the one that you talked yeah. about yeah so if we acknowledge our situation that we're white and stuff yeah and our trust that we can have in yeah. the government given our nation yeah, right yeah. so this solution in in which countries is it applicable because i remember talking when everything black Lives matter came out like to its peak mm. In, mm. in the summer 2020 I, right yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh covid time is crazy yeah mm. 2020 i guess mm. and i was talking to my dad and he was like he so both my parents are from serbia Belgrade, yeah and he was like it's crazy the thought that you have that you would think that the police would protect you. Mm. So him growing up, he never felt that yeah. the police would protect him in any way. And that's the same way for black people in America yeah. or in yeah. many parts of the world. Yeah. Don't feel like they could protect them. And I think if you're on a wider picture, whether you can trust the government is the same sort of thing. That sort of privilege that you can feel that the government would protect you, that the government would take that on board. Because I don't think that there's many examples to say that the government has been able to take something, um, nationalise it, mm. and then 
change it to carbon sequestration? Yeah. In, in what timeline? Yeah. No, it's a good point. It's like, can the political system actually do this? Well, we're trying to change the paradigm and the system that breeds this political system. But the thing is, like, with that example, the fossil fuel industry used to be nationalized in the UK. BP used to be a national company yeah. under government ownership. So it's not like completely beyond the pale. But again, like it's going to require immense political will to do this. Yeah. And the politicians we have right now do not have that political will. <laughs> I think like what we're trying to do also like by promoting that solution is just like changing people's like idea of what needs to happen. It's like meant to be deliberately provocative, like mm-hmm. to stretch what people even consider possible. Like, can it be actionable with like right now? Hypothetically, yes, if, if, if politicians actually had the courage to do so. But as a society, I think we're not there yet. Yeah. But it can change quickly again. Like like I said, if we build that critical mass of people who care so much. Yeah. I mean, even you're just talking about um, the politicians right now yeah. don't have that, yeah. you know, to change yeah. it. I remember walking to the protest, to the COP26 protest yeah. on a Saturday, and we bumped into this, like, middle-aged couple. And yeah. we were walking, like, oh, you're going to the protest? And we're like, yeah, it's so cool, middle-aged people yeah. going to a yeah. protest, whatever. Yeah. When you get to talking, and she's like, oh, yeah, I'm one of the seven green MSPs in Parliament in Scotland. And I was like, that's so cool that the Parliament's going protesting. And then I talked to my friend after, and they were like, why is a politician... <laughs> going to a protest at COP26. I I was like, you're right. (laughs) I suppose suppose the only redeeming quality is that they're in the absolute minority, like the Green Party in the Scottish Parliament. Yeah. So they don't necessarily have a critical threshold in order to actually implement change. But again, like you see this in more like what the hell is happening. Like when Justin Trudeau in Canada marched with like youth climate strikers i was like mm. what the hell why are you marching <laughs> you're the president <laughs> you're like the leader of the country you can implement so many changes yeah it's and it's that like performative climate activism mm. like what leaders love to talk big on climate and especially to become more dystopian or more hyperbolic saying we're approaching midnight we're facing existential doom like this is what mm. boris johnson says mm. by no means a climate activist and they say that to appease young people and people who really care. They're saying all the right things if they're doing nothing right in yeah. practice, which is like so evil. My thing is that like if they didn't even acknowledge it a little bit, this climate apathy would drive us crazy, like revolution yeah. type stuff. Yeah. If literally no one was listening to us or acknowledging us, right? Yeah. And we're still there. I mean, yeah. yeah in Glasgow, half, yeah. A, half yeah. a million people going marching on the street. That's not little, but it's yeah. not revolution first no yeah again that's why it's so tricky it's like they're saying this just to show you that they are listening to you but Mm. they're not Mm. implementing the actions like it's all about action right like words are cheap action is expensive yeah especially in a political sense well i hate this i mean this is my worldview is that i'm just like money why money (laughs) the fact that it just makes no sense as well that you said i mean like england has been like in a financial deficit fiscal mm, deficit mm, yeah for yeah, so long yeah. i'm just like okay so money means nothing yeah no it's so interesting because the budget deficit really doesn't matter hypothetically mm. it's like all these politicians just say what about the deficit whenever you want to pay for a social welfare program mm. or anything that actually tangibly improves the world 
you never hear about that when you pour trillions of dollars into the exactly. war on terror or on funding the military. Mm. With your nationalization strategy. Mm. So I was thinking a lot about Bolivia. Yeah. My uncle's from Bolivia. And yeah. he was, and we were, just think, where are my words? There, when, because of colonialization, yeah. they are like so reliant on extractivism. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was thinking, okay, so if fossil fuel divestment or just stopping fossil fuels, how does that impact like a nation like that, mm. which we've caused, mm. or like Americans and Spanish, whatever, have caused to be reliant on this? And then we can kind of just leave them behind. I mean, that's the climate yeah. operations, right? Yeah. But True. that thought sits so uneasy with me because yeah. like the privilege to be like, oh, okay, we're just going to stop it. Yeah. We have to make it a just transition, certainly. That's yeah. also with all these net zero targets. Like the UK becoming net zero by 2050 is not climate justice. Mm-mm. In order for it to be a just target, in order for them to account for their historical emissions, it has to be much closer to 2030, 2035. So within 10 years, basically, we mm-hmm. stop emitting carbon, which we're like, we're still building coal mines in this country. <laughs> but again, it is really important to acknowledge that these policies have disproportionate applicability depending on what country like in bolivia mm-hmm. ultimately we have to dismantle the fossil fuel industry but they still have more of an allowance to emit because they have such a negligible historical mm-hmm. impact but again like i don't necessarily think that they have to continue extraction because in the end that's not going to benefit them either in terms of the emissions it will result in so part of climate reparations is providing them with the money, the technology as well, which oftentimes is bound up in like intellectual property rights mm-hmm. in order for them to actually develop an economy that they want. Especially in Bolivia, it's so interesting because like Eva Morales is a socialist and actually recently in their constitution, they embedded the rights of nature. So nature has rights yeah. that can't be violated. So they clearly have like a very ecological element to it as well. Yet they continue drilling for oil because they need to fund all of these like social welfare programs. Yeah, well, that's what kind of the downfall of Evan yeah. Morales kind of was because he came in, had the indigenous cabinet, made amazing strides, like yeah. having justice for nature. But at the same time, he couldn't fund his social policies yeah. without having to rely on extractivism. Yeah. And it kind of contradicts to the other efforts he's trying to put in. But that's the dilemma that we've put these nations yeah. in through colonization. I, I, I think... It's also important to look at, like, is Bolivia in debt? Because so much of the global south is in debt. So they, mm. they don't have enough money, actually, to finance these programs because a lot of their money is just going to creditors in the global north. Mm. And a lot of this debt is bound up in colonialism mm. because they received loans to other colonial countries to exploit their colonies. And once the colonies became independent, they basically shifted that debt burden onto them. It's such a massive issue. The global south, which is predominantly in debt, like debt levels are like $9 trillion, which is a massive amount. So they're like, there's a chokehold on them. They cannot even like, Mm -hmm. they're sending money to people and banks in the global north at a time when they can't even afford basic COVID health protocols or to adapt to climate change. And not many people are aware about that as well. I wasn't, but I just thought that now when you said that. Yeah, I actually uh, wrote an article on this. Nice. Subtle plug in the, <laughs> in the Green European Journal, which yeah, like that's epic. Yeah, it was like I mean they kind of like changed my writing style, which is like whack. Okay. They changed my the title. Editors. Yeah, 
There were like four drafts. Well, that certainly wasn't the end of the lively discussion, but this isn't the end of the podcast. It was so refreshing to have a new voice in the studio, and we do recognize that it is still the perspective of somebody from the global north. However, it did add some much-needed diversity and freshness. In future, we're looking forward to having a greater plurality of voices on this podcast, including some other young people who have recently joined the team. As always, thank you for listening. We hope everyone's had a restful holiday period, and we look forward to you guys joining us in two weeks' time for our second episode of 2022. My goodness, 2030 is approaching.